Last week, we left uh, service with Jesus in tears. Jesus was weeping, but not in the way that we're led to believe. Why was Jesus in tears? Is it something I said? Something you did? Well, I mentioned very briefly as we're closing out that one factor may have been the way that Jesus was faced with the reality of death. As a human, as a man, he was facing mankind's most real and powerful enemy. That powerful enemy, as I said, is not Satan. Satan is nothing. Satan is defeated foe. He's as good as done. He is still active, but he's going to be done, and Jesus is going to completely take care of that, throw him into a pit for a while, and then eventually to his destined place of burning in the lake of fire. That is not who our enemy is. In Christ Jesus, Satan has no authority over us. He is very real and active. Don't mistake what I'm saying. Satan is. He's real. But he has nothing over us for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so the enemy that we do face as created beings is death. And death is something that is unnatural to us. The good news is that Jesus made a way for us to spiritually never die. We may face death as Christians, as believers, uh, as humans. That's just something that happens because of sin entering into the world and the decay of nature, which was not God's design. But one day we will receive a glorified body and we will be able to eat of the tree of life. And we will not experience both spiritual death or physical death. Now, a lot of people mix that up. They think that Adam ate of the tree of life. They, that's the one tree that they know, but that is not the case. Adam disobeyed and ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it was because he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, and what did he station to guard the tree of life? Do we know? Cherubim. In Hebrew, it's it's a type of angels, one classification of angels, the cherubim, which means there was more than one. We don't know how many. You'll see them drawn as typically one with a flaming sword. But if you really read the literal Hebrew, it's, I'm really, this this is a bunny trail here. It doesn't say that there were angels with flaming swords. It says there were angels, cherubim, and a flaming sword turning every which direction. So I got to get this picture of like angels standing guard on the east side of this tree of the garden. And there was this flame. It was just almost like the eye of Sauron. It was just looking everywhere. That's, that's what I picture. But I don't know. God can cor- uh, correct me when we get to heaven. But <laughs> the, the eye of, what's, the, what's the, the nice version of Sauron? Can we, the eye of Yeshua. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, anyway. So Adam... When he disobeyed, he took on the sinful nature he had, and, and it was really by God's mercy, his grace, that he had this tree of life guarded. Because had Adam eaten of the tree of life, he would have been eternally stuck in a body that was decaying and sin and hair loss and all the other things that come with age, wrinkles. That's <laughs> but God, rich in his mercy, he had that tree of life guarded and instead... He would make it one of the centerpieces in the new heavens to the new earth, right? We get to go, eventually we're looking forward to the day we get to eat the tree of life there. Now, so back to deliverance over from death. My point is that God 
never desired his creation to go through death or experience death. And the point is that man was never forbidden from eating of the tree of life to begin with, which is interesting. The one tree that Adam was told not to eat of was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But I, can, I infer from that that God actually intended for us to live and dwell and habitate with him forever. By his grace, as I said, he did not allow that to happen after Adam knew good from evil and became full of a sinful nature. So death came about after Adam disobeyed, and the Apostle Paul brings us out in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Death is our enemy. That is the enemy, not Satan. Death is our enemy. It's, and, and death is fundamentally opposed to the identity of Christ Jesus. We must understand this. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the Death is opposed to the identity of Christ, of who he is, of his character. And we must understand that death undermines the character and nature of Christ Jesus. It is opposed to him. Otherwise, the only explanation is that there was an identity crisis at the scene of creation. That Jesus, who is the life, was creating death, which doesn't make sense. Jesus, who is the life, desired us to walk in the fullness of life, death, was something that he was not surprised by, but it was not his desire for us to experience and walk through. Jesus is the life. Now, I know that may not sound, uh, may not be sound scientifically, but it is sound theologically, that the world was created without death and without pain. Personally, I'd rather be deemed foolish by the world while holding to a literal biblical view than try to find meaning in God's word in light of scientific theory. But set that aside if you want. The point is that according to Paul, death is an enemy. It's unnatural. It was not part of God's creation. And when facing those words that we have in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, you have two options. You can either try to spiritualize those words and find meaning in some sort of metaphor, or you can take them at face value. And as for me... I believe quite literally that death is not what God intended for his creation to go through. And so Jesus, here he was, he was facing death with his friend Lazarus. And he was experiencing a ton of emotion. That's one possibility. He might have been crying with them. He might have been thinking about his death. I mentioned these things. You can go back and listen to the sermon from last week if you'd like. But that, I believe, is one of the biggest components to why Jesus was brought to tears, as I pointed out last week, the word we use is wept in English. That's not even the right word. It is a distinct word. It means Jesus was tearing, John eleven thirty five. Now, this morning we pick back up in this. We're about to make it to Lazarus's almost alive body. We're in the middle of John chapter 11. Let's pick up at verse 36. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Now the Jews, we can't be sure which ones, but John was often referring to these religious zealots that wanted to kill Jesus as the Jews. 
And these Jews, whoever they were, said two things. Number one, see how he loved him. And I want to give credit to them for at least being able to recognize that Jesus did love people. But this love is not the agape love. John is the author. He often writes about love. He wrote more about love than anybody else. But he makes a point here, and the love that they said of Jesus was phileo love. It's or Philadelphia, that's where we get phileo, Philadelphia from, from the root word phileo. It's brotherly love. So they see Jesus as having affection for Lazarus, but because the phrasing is strange and, and John was so often accusing the Jews of having an agenda, it's almost as if we can infer there was a problem or they had a problem with the way that Jesus was loving Lazarus. I don't believe these were endearing words, verse 36. So the only thing that I can think of or come up with is that perhaps they were wondering why this non-relative, this non-native to Bethany, would care so much for someone that he hardly knew. And while they were partially correct in their observations of Christ's love, they had far underestimated the intricacies of why he came. It was not just for Lazarus, and it was a much deeper love than that. His agape love would be extended to all the world. The second thing, and this is why I believe there was a little bit of... Uh, skepticism in that statement in verse 36. The second thing we see is that couldn't this man have healed him? They're like, couldn't Jesus have just healed him? And I mean, at some point, we're not even surprised that they're nitpicking about this, right? We've worked, those that have been with us since the beginning of John, we're working through this to see how we might grow up into a more mature believer, a more mature man. We're looking at the words, the actions of Christ Jesus, how we can apply them to ourselves. And we've come time and time again, we're faced with, with uh, Jesus doing something, the Pharisees and certain Jews are upset about the way he did it or why he did it or when he did it, on which day he did it, what he ate after he did it, why he did it this way, why blue chairs instead of red chairs is just like the church. Oh, I don't like that carpet. Right? We're guilty of the same thing. We make big deals out of nothing. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. And so we're not really surprised on one hand, are we? I don't know if you're like that, maybe constantly nitpicking others. Here they were, Jesus' healing was not done good enough. I don't know if you've met anybody like that. Maybe you are like that. If you really want to find out if you're nitpicky, ask somebody that you know will be honest with you and blunt at the same time. Say, hey, do I complain? Do I find things to nitpick about? Making sure I'm not looking at my wife. No, not her. She, I'm the nitpicker. That's how the Jews were. Why did he have to heal him on the day of rest? Couldn't he have just waited until tomorrow? I thought Mr. Healer Man could heal. What? His superpowers fall short on Lazarus? Are they intermittent? You know, nitpickery is not a really nice trait. We shouldn't be critical and disparaging. Again, I'm not even looking over here in this side of the room. I just want to confess that I'm a gifted nitpicker. Like, anyone else want to, like, get some brownie points with their spouse and, and have some confession with me, right? <laughs> yep. I'm not making eye contact with anyone this morning. <laughs> Here's some conviction for y'all. Nitpickery, I was thinking through it. It's not grounded in contentment, patience, and peacekeeping. Yeah. 
The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is not nitpickery. They don't jive. They don't fit together. Where does nitpickery come from? I'm gonna, I think I'm just going to coin that. <laughs> you know, it's rooted and related in ground, uh, grumbling and complaining, right? Which, by the way, God hates. I know because it was my elementary school's version of God is good. We were always God is gooding, but it was God hates complaining. And we'd yell that. That was the you know, call and response we always did with our chaplain. God hates complaining. We loved that phrase, but we didn't really understand what it meant as little kids. Now I have kids. <laughs> They're getting better. You know, God really does hate grumbling and complaining. You want to read some verses on it, you can just check out the book of Exodus, the whole book. <laughs> That'll pretty much get it covered. Paul says in Philippians 2, 14 through 15, do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's so convicting. Not, all, not some things, not a few things, all things, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. We've been talking about lights, what it means to shine your light. You want to know how you better shine your light? If you got nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Mm, I'm preaching to myself this morning, church. I wasn't even going to say that. <laughs> Holy Spirit made me do it. Anyway, these Jews, and no doubt Eric would have done the same thing. They take issue with Jesus' timing on the matter. It's like Jesus can't even win. We liked your healing, but we just don't understand why you do it the way you do it or how you do it. I reckon the main issue that they had with Jesus' healing was unbelief. They refused to believe who he said he was. So perhaps there was envy. Perhaps there was frustration. Perhaps there was jealousy. Sometimes I wonder if I had lived back then, if I would have been a follower of Christ if I would have been a religious naysayer. The truth is, I believe today without signs and wonders, and they wouldn't even believe with signs and wonders. And so I'd like to suggest that we not make the mistake of false humility in excusing those doubters for their lack of unbelief. Sometimes we try to associate with these people and we sort of excuse their actions because sometimes we feel like we can relate to it. But the Bible, the Bible backs up what I'm saying here. In John 20, 29, we're going to get to this in a few months maybe. Jesus says to Thomas, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. In other words, Thomas, while I'm happy that you believe, don't pat yourself on the back because if you were born a, a generation later, just maybe you wouldn't believe at all. And, I, and I'm just saying, don't give these Jews credit for believing Jesus could have healed Lazarus when they don't even believe that he's Messiah. And it's clear that they had ulterior motives when they said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man just have healed, kept this man from dying? This is not a statement born in, in faith, but this was a statement in skepticism. 
Now, whether Jesus hears the remark, John does not say, but let's look down at what happens next. Jesus, again, being deeply moved within. We just made it through two verses in like 15 minutes. That was really good. <laughs> Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he had been dead for days. And I think the King James Version says this best. It says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. And I just think that we ought to bring that word back, stinketh. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. What do we see here? Firstly, Jesus is correcting Martha's lack of faith and understanding. You remember from last week, she believed in the coming resurrection of her brother. Lord, I know that in the last day. But she did not understand what Jesus was about to do. So he corrects her. She has some doubt. Lord, it's going to stink. You're going to regret that. He corrects her, and they obey, whereby removing the stone over this stinketh, the stinky cave. And at this point in time, Jesus looks to heaven, and he speaks to the Father first with thanksgiving, and there's a nugget here. We enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Lord, teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed. Stop and worship. Give praise, honor, and glory to God. Jesus taught, and he models that prayer, ought to start with thanksgiving to God. He looks with his eyes to heaven, and he says, I thank you. God, I know that you have heard me. Now, Jesus records that Jesus prays using this very unique Greek verb tense, aorist. There is no equivalent in English. So in English, normally, that word is translated in the past tense. In Greek, sorry, you're getting a Greek lesson, I have to this morning. In Greek, it is a totally different meaning. It's said to be, the action is said to be punctiliar. That means it has no regard to time, past, present, or future. We don't have an equivalent in Greek verb, I mean in English verbs, excuse me. So some assume that because in English it's rendered in past tense that Jesus has already prayed before. But that's not what John wrote. I just want to point out that it, it has no tying to, it, to anything in any timeline. That's, he's specifically using this aorist tense. And Greek has past, present, and future also. We're also going to talk about pluperfect in a second. Now that said, I also must be careful how I explain this for this very same reason, is that this verb does not have any attachment to time, because this, there's a line here is very thin, so bear with me while I try to flesh this out, because uh, I, I believe it's saying a whole lot more than we often think when we just read this in English. The nugget that I got is that Jesus is praying to God outside of our timeline. God does not regard past, present, and future like we do because he is outside of time. 
He's eternal. He had no beginning. God has no end. A thousand years is like a... And a day is like a... That is a very primitive explanation that God is outside of our timeline. Sometimes things move really fast in his world. Sometimes things are really slow and it doesn't matter. That's what it's describing. See, God is not bound by our days and nights. In fact, he created them. Day one, God separated the light from dark and he names the light day and the dark he calls night. He invented time as we know it, as we perceive it. Light and dark, this is the basis by which we define time. In fact, we arbitrarily divide the time between two sunrises into 24 sections called hours. We could have done it differently. God could have done it differently also. God is outside our time, yet he can insert himself into our timeline whenever he wants because he invented time. So our days are arbitrary to God. The point is that because God is outside of time, Here's the kicker. Lazarus's resurrection had already taken, pla taken place. It is taking place, and it will take place. For those that have been in Tridestone for a while, you know that this is how I describe salvation. A, a really well-thought-out and thorough uh, response to are you saved is, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Sometimes the Bible talks about salvation in a past tense. Sometimes in English it's translated in the present, in ongoing. Work out your salvation with fear and trouble. Sometimes it's talked about in a future tense. We call these words sometimes, some people just like to distinguish them, and we break down salvation into three different components. Justification, we are justified when he died on the cross. There's the sanctification, which is kind of like this ongoing, and there's this glorification, which is this future aspect. And while that might be helpful for you to think of salvation in this, this way, just understand it's not a three-step process. It's not that you have to be justified, and now I've just got to be sanctified. I've got to work it out really good, and eventually I'm going to be glorified. That in God's timeline, because he's outside of our timeline, all three of those things have happened, are happening, and will happen. Salvation is taking place, it has taken place, and will take place. And this applies to all spiritual things that must be realized on earth. Hang with me. In some sense, before Jesus even prayed, Lazarus had already been resurrected. It was planned and predestined before the foundations of the world. Jesus knew this fact, verse 4 of chapter 11. Because he was tapped into God's plan, being perfectly in tune with the Holy Spirit. So even though in earth's timeline, Lazarus had not yet been raised from the dead, he was already resurrected in God's world. And Jesus, knowing that, decided to declare it in man's timeline. This is where the aorist tense comes in, the punctiliar having no regard to any time. You could say that in our world, the resurrection of Lazarus had just not been yet realized, even though it had already occurred in God's. 
Which brings me to the point. What makes heaven and earth's realities collide is the declaration from our mouths. Remember, Jesus taught this, that we are to loose the things, here's this weird tense again, that have already been loosed, and bind the things that have already been bound. He was teaching us that there is a connection point between the realities that God has ordained and the things that we declare by our mouths on earth. Do you realize that every healing that you need this side of eternity from any and every disease has already taken place in God's domain? By his stripes, that's Jesus's, you have been healed. And that's the power of confession. This is where faith comes in. It's a partnership with what's happening in our world, the natural world, to what has already happened in the spiritual arena. It's declaring and releasing on earth the things that have already been planned since the foundation of the world. Faith is tapping into the finished work of Jesus and releasing it into our world. So Jesus prays. I know that you have already heard me before he's even prayed it. That's what our prayers ought to be. In fact, that's what prayer is. Prayer is declaring in real time what he has planned to do. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. The word new is another strange tense. It's called the pluperfect. Let me just read the description from a lexicon. Pluperfect tense indicates an event viewed as having been once for all accomplished in past time. I knew that you heard me. In other words, Jesus is saying to the Father, I knew that you knew everything about me from all time. You've known everything, period, done. Before I even prayed it, you knew it. Do you realize that every prayer you'll ever pray, God has already heard? Do you also realize that every sin you'll ever commit, He's already witnessed? And don't miss this, He still loves you. I mean, that ought to free you up, honestly. Right? <laughs> like, He knows everything you're going to do, and He still chose you. That, that ought to, in a, some weird way, give you some encouragement and peace. I don't know if anyone needed to hear that this morning. I did. Everything good or bad that you will do in your timeline, in the natural world, he's already aware of it. Pastor, why do we even bother praying then? Because God will never hear the prayer that you fail to pray. God cannot answer an unprayed prayer. Sure, he can do things without your prayer. He can do whatever he wants. 
but he cannot answer your prayer unless you ask. This is worth paying attention to. We as children of God must release those already accomplished things into our world. How will they be made manifest? How will the healings and miracles be realized if we don't, through faith, speak them into existence in our reality? That's what prayer is. Prayer is asking God to impart the things that he's already done. God, I know that you've already healed Lazarus, but I'm confessing it with my mouth out loud that these around me might believe. I know you've already done it. But that is the power of confession. God, would you collide your spiritual realm with the natural realm in this very moment that they might believe? And faith is like the partnership between these two realities, heaven and earth. Beloved, if you meditate and marinate in this truth, I'm confident that you will come to see that this is where the power of confession lies. The, the things that God has already done, the things that God already knows must be asked for and released into the natural world. We must agree in the present for the things that have occurred in the past. It's not that we're changing God's mind through prayer, yet the paradox is that we are boldly reminding him of what he's already accomplished and asking him to give it on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus approached the Father and he prays, God, may you release this resurrection that they may believe you sent me. Once again, I want to remind you that John wrote this gospel that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus set that precedent first. He says that they may believe you sent me. John really just picked up on this. He received that mantle that Christ Jesus laid out. He, he grabbed that baton from Christ and he wrote a gospel for it that they might believe. Jesus here, after he prays this prayer, cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I'd argue that that requires confidence. It demands authority. Imagine showing up at a funeral and with confidence shouting, Bob, be raised. I'd argue it requires confidence, but it also demands authority. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And he sent them out that they might bring the world to confession and repentance. In Luke's gospel, he tells us specifically that he sent them in pairs ahead. They might heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and cleanse the leper. The world doesn't need wimpy prayers. Church ought not be made up of bashful warriors. 
We declare it. We declare the things that he's already done. We proclaim them with confidence with the authority of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I feel that the NRV might just benefit from a few Lazarus come forth. Verse 44. The man who had died came forth. I love how he just, John just leaves his name out now after he's mentioned him a hundred times. The man who died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. I love these details here that Lazarus was bound and hand and foot and his face is still wrapped. Here he had to walk out with his grave clothes still on. I don't know if you've ever had to sleep on a bad mattress a night or two. Anyone ever slept on a bedrock for four days? Yeah, been there, done that. I got some really bad whiplash before we went out of town for Christmas and then bounced around between different relatives' beds. It was like moving from one boulder to another. <laughs> and I tell you, I got to a point where I, I couldn't even turn my neck. I, I, I imagined myself kind of walking kind of like Lazarus was. It was like, <laughs> I'm coming. <laughs> Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told him the things which Jesus had done. Many of the Jews believed, but some. Remember, this is leading up to the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. These words are stark, aren't they? Many believed, yet others went to tattletale. Nobody likes a tattler. Don't be a tattler. What did you learn in church today? Not to tattle. Stinketh, <laughs> nitpickery. Nobody likes tattlers and nitpickers. That stinketh. Forty-seven. Therefore, the chief. We're just going to close this out quickly. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, "What are we doing? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him." And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to him, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Interesting. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Also interesting. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Interesting. Let me attempt to make clear what John is saying. Firstly, in 48, it's the omission that the Pharisees are worried about losing their power as rulers. Now, we've known this. We can look backwards. We've heard this. But this is where we have it in writing. They clearly were jealous of Christ Jesus. In verse 51, we find out that Caiaphas had already prophesied of Jesus' death, which is a bizarre thought, is it not? Did this word come by, was it just a happenstance? Was it come from the devil or did it come by God? Well, if it came from God, which I believe, then take note that God can use human vessels to orchestrate his plan even when they don't understand what's going on. Like Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar, God can and will use others to do his will. <clears throat> even though they may not acknowledge him as God. 
That's what I believe is going on here. Caiaphas, like Balaam, was prophesying of what he did not intend. You can see Numbers 24, 10 through 13. Which leads us to number three. In a divine irony, verse 50 became true, but not in the way that Caiaphas meant it. Let's read it again. It is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. That was a prophecy. Caiaphas clearly thought that Jesus was leading the people astray and that the whole nation would crumble because of Jesus' teachings. What he failed to perceive is that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. These things were going to come true, that Jesus was going to die, but the whole nation would not perish because of it. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Or as Joseph put it, what you meant evil against me, God had meant for good in order to bring about the present results to preserve many people alive. That's the picture of Jesus in the cross. That the devil would orchestrate something through the hands of Caiaphas was absolutely part of God's plan. And here we see the same thing happening. That God, outside of time, can use his people or not his people to accomplish his will. The question is, will you partner with God in the present reality of our timeline to bring about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Are you going to kick against the goad? Are you going to work against God? Or are you going to work with him and loose the things that he has already loosed on his timeline and bind up the things that he has already bound in his timeline? Dr. Morris from... Virginia Tech, wrote, Caiaphas, the chief religious representative of God to the people of Israel, should have known the Old Testament prophecies and gladly welcomed Jesus as the promised Messiah. Instead, he organized his trial and condemnation, yet he was divinely inspired without knowing or intending it to point out the real mission of Christ to the Jews in the whole world that of substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. 53, as we close up the chapter. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. This prepares us for the Holy Week, the rest of the Gospel of John. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. It's up north, northeast of the capital, Jerusalem. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were, at, they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Remember, the Passover was required. They were expecting him and looking for him. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him.